0: Go ahead and flip to Genesis 3, and you're going to want to see this, so make sure if you have your Bible, go there, Genesis 3, and we're going to read verses 8 through 13. Um, What translation did you read from there, Matt? Was it ESV. ESV? Okay, so notice he says in James 4, 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions or your cravings or your desires are at war within you? So... What happens outside of us, is starts from within. So that's the paradigm we're going to work with um, today. So Genesis 3, verses 8 through 13. I'll read that and then we'll uh, pray and uh, dig in. Genesis 3, verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, God says, he asks, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we have gathered here with the intention of of giving you glory and spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. Um, We ask and pray that your spirit would saturate our hearts with a true and loyal faith so that the deeds we attempt for your kingdom would indeed be pure, coming from a clear heart, excuse me, a clean heart and a clear conscience. Um, We ask and pray that the ethics of your law word would be on the forefront of our minds. So help us to see, hear, and apply in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as we saw two weeks ago, uh, guilt and responsibility belong together because guilt is incurred when responsibility is forsaken. Guilt is incurred when responsibility is forsaken. Uh, when Adam and Eve chose to forego their responsibility to work and keep the garden in obedience to God, they essentially, we know, incurred guilt for having transgressed the law of God. They're, they had a responsibility, they had forsaken it, Thus, they became guilty. So the autonomous impulse, this autonomous impulse, though, is at the center of all pagan thinking and philosophizing. So know that. That's at the center of it all. With God and his covenant thrown aside, man's ascendancy will inexorably follow. It will just come. When you throw God to the side, your ascendancy, your, your um, self-enthronement always follows. When you reject God. In fact, we could say that history's great antithesis is this interminable jostling of thrones and dominions. It's just never ending. This is the antithesis of history. Um, God's on the throne or man's on the throne. And man can only attempt, right? And the question then becomes, you know, who's in charge? Who do I report to? This is the covenant model. Is man in charge and thus he's the sovereign or is God the sovereign in this relationship? The futility, and that's what it is, the futility of man's attempts to dethrone God is shown in the revival of, of paganism in our day, especially paganism's attempt at trying to assuage God, man's guilty conscience, trying to soothe that conscience. That is the paganism we see all around us. And so it's kind of this weird... Um, Pagan, Eastern thought, these um, kind of collision of worldviews right now in our pluralistic culture. One of the foremost ways that sinful man tries to relieve his guilt is by blaming his environment. And that's what we mean by environmentalism. Blaming his environment. Take the incident at the Forbidden Tree uh, in, in Eden. When God asked about Adam's nakedness and if he had eaten from the Forbidden Tree, Adam replied... The woman whom you gave me, right? She gave it to me and then I ate. So the guile in Adam's heart is now on display for all to see. In his guilt, he had a decision to make. In his guilt, Adam attempted to appease his conscience by blaming God's apparently deficient gift, the woman that you gave me. Eve, who was given to Adam as a preeminent gift, was now to blame, she was on the receiving end, of Adam's bad decision. Not to be outdone, though, Eve, when asked the same very question, uh, (laughs) she decided to blame the serpent. The serpent deceived me. See, both parties claimed that their environment was the cause of their transgression, and thus both parties basically ignored their individual moral culpability for their sin. Um, when we consider peacemaking and I I especially think of it in terms of like parenting, um, a lot of times, and I'm sure your house is the same way, but a lot of times you can get into this blame shifting Mm -hmm. and what, what what Mary and I've tried to do and it, you know, it never works out perfectly because sin is kind of this, you know, sticky, gooey, icky thing, but it's, let's stop for a moment. And both of you, both parties need to acknowledge where they were guilty because you know, one hit the other. One said the thing, and then it, you know the toy, and then there's this chaos. But moral culpability is is important to acknowledge. Otherwise, we just blame others. We blame our environment, right? Why did you hate your sister? Because the toy you gave me, Dad, right? Like this garden of Eden all over again. But moral culpability is is always going to be present, and so it's very important in any sort of exercise of peacemaking in any relationships, or especially parenting, is to acknowledge both parties have potentially given their guilt to each other in ways that are unhelpful. Now, paganism itself itself believes in what we can call a closed universe, that man exists inside this impersonal, indifferent universe. That's the predominant feature of pagan thought. If there is no personality governing Man, then there must be no personal universe either. Right? So an impersonal universe, you know, it's just like, suck it up. You live in this world. It just is deal with it. It's kind of an impersonal thing. If an impersonal universe means that there's no meaning and therefore there's no accountability. There's no meaning and no accountability without meaning. Man is obviously free to blame his environment, right? After all, evolution made me like this. You know, why are are humans the way they are? Well, evolution, we just can't explain it. Without accountability, then man is free to determine his own purpose because after all, naturalistic evolution is purposeless. So you gotta figure it out for yourself. Be your own person, right? Live your truth, as it says all over Washington, D.C. So this closed universe Thinking means that the earth is all we have and death just is. Chance governs us all. Fate is her handmaiden. So pagan belief in such nonsense obviously requires a whole lot of environmental philosophy. So if, if you and I are simply bags of meat and protoplasm and neurons that are firing about, you know, pro- products of time versus chance, kind of working somehow together magically to, to, um, to make us you know, who we are, then whatever happens is what we can call this relativized chain of being. Everything's self-determined instead of God-determined, right? If, if God isn't there and all we have is the universe, then you get to make it whatever you want. So in this sense, predestination and, and imputation of meaning and purpose and all this stuff, it's just nothing but self-contrived processes. You do you, that sort of mantra, right? It's not that we're simply spontaneous creatures. We're spontaneous creatures who have the obligation, whoever who says, right, to create our own world, right? Live your truth, create your own world. Well, who says? Why? This existential drive basically forces man then to adopt his own sovereignty to then explain his own existence away apart from God. That's paganism. But the Bible obviously speaks of no such thing. The, Bible, the God of the Bible asserts his, assor- his authority, asserts His superiority, and He does it in and through His actions in history. Um, you may not have a direct relative that was involved in the Exodus event, but they're your ancestors because by faith we have been brought in. And that act of God is an act of God that your God, that you worship, has done in history. And he continues to do in history. See, he is the creator of the world. Every atom and molecule moves about governed by the sovereignty of this Jehovah. This is not a universe governed by chance. It's a universe governed by personal God. His sovereignty, what we can say over time and through time, results in what theologians often call first and second causes. First and second causes. So God is the great first cause and he is a being and we are secondary causes. Um, We had this discussion, remember Eli in the car, like who, who did God invent macaroni and cheese? That was the discussion. And I got to explain, well, sort of, God created man and man had the freedom to explore that and somebody put macaroni and cheese together and said this is glorious, right? So that's, you know, there's kind of this first cause, second cause. So, in other words, when we think about God's sovereignty and our responsibility, here's the best way you can think of it. And this is Calvinism 101. But God has given us the freedom to choose that which he has predestined. You get to choose what God has predestined. That's the, that's the glory. And you're free to do so. Um, only when, of course, you are regenerated can you really, truly choose that which is good, and beautiful. So we are free as secondary, wholly derived creatures to move about in history with purpose and meaning, but this moving about can only be done to such a degree that it acknowledges and worships the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, Matt, you're talking to council members who are not free. (laughs) They're slaves to their sin. So even so, this also means that the tripersonal Godhead, He has a law that we know is attached to His person. In order to be sovereign, he must have a law word, and we find that in the Bible. But this fact alone completely eradicates any possible success mission of man's usurpation of God. He can try to usurp God. He will often try to do so, but he can never really ultimately do it. Man will try to rid himself of God. Man will, to, to borrow Rushduni's title, revolt against the maturity that God requires of him. However, this will be entirely unsuccessful because man is a finite creature. It's laughable in our culture for people who reject God, who reject any standard of fixed objectivity, try to come up with objectivity on their own. It's laughable. See, man's creatureliness means that man is accountable and responsible to God, and not only to God, but his law as well. He can't blame his environment For his plight. As James 4:1 questions, you know, what is it, what is it that causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions, that's the ESV, are at war within you? In other words, it's not what goes into a man that pollutes him, it's what comes out, right? It's what comes out of the heart, the center of man, that taints him and blemishes him. We're not primarily products of our environment. We are created to create. We have been produced to produce. We have been caused in order to cause. We are personal beings who come from the personal being. Now, let's get very practical on how environmentalism tends to work itself out, okay? So, you may have grown up in a terrible home. You may have grown up with abusive parents, promiscuous parents, or addicted parents verbal abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, may have marked your childhood to some degree or another. Fathers who run out on their wives, wives who run out on their fathers, uh, the husbands, um, they, these are really the environments that many people have been raised in. And it's, it's amazing when you think about the LGBTQ er movement, how many of those stories are products of abuse abuse, this traumatic event happened, and that sort of spiraled into other promiscuous activity. Um, Perhaps your parents never taught you how to handle conflict. Perhaps your parents never taught you how to manage money. Um, Perhaps your public school didn't teach you how to manage money. Uh, I remember having trouble with money when I was first out of college because I did not understand credit card interest rates. And I worked at Best Buy. And I had a sweet discount. PlayStation 2, anyone? (laughs) New TV? See, perhaps you were bullied. Perhaps you were bullied, whether in public school or cases in church, even. Um, it's quite possible that some form of sexual abuse came about in your childhood. But nevertheless, these grievous sins should not be seen as things that determine who you are. Okay? This is, a, this is huge when we talk about environmentalism. Um, things that have happened in your life, whether from childhood, childhood's a big aspect of it for shaping, obviously, adults, but any of those situations, um, relationships... Um, bad experiences, traumatic events, all these things, none of them determine who you are. They don't determine your identity. Okay, so we're gonna, let's, if you recall from the first message, message of this series, I traced the difference between the pagan construction of the world and Christian theology, right? The pagan sees man as a product of his environment and only his environment. Christian doctrine, however, teaches that man is a product of the living God made in his image, So our being and person and nature is God-determined, not self-determined. You don't get to just decide to be whoever it is you want to be. You have to be whoever it is God has designed you to be. there's a major world of a difference in that thinking. So this distinction, I think, is absolutely necessary for dealing with our emotions, dealing with addictions, dealing with trials, dealing with suffering. We're not made in the image of our environment. See, it goes without saying that we have to deal with our family of origin issues. All of us have had different family of origin issues. Good, bad, probably a combination of a whole lot of that. You have to deal with the fact that some of you have been betrayed by someone at some point in your life. Some of you have been hurt by someone. And usually the greatest amount of pain is inflicted by people who we value the most. Some guy off the street calls you a name at the abortion clinic. It's like, whatever. But if your friend who you put your trust in calls you that, it's devastating. It's, it's deeper. We have to deal with the fact that we've been crushed by people, been let down by people, that our day-to-day existence is somehow shaped and molded by people who have hurt us. Uh, in other words, somewhere along the line, you've been affected by someone else's sins. Families can be tremendous blessings, and they can also be horrific curses. you know the phrase, blood's thicker than water? Families, um, really, all of that depends on the holiness of its members and constituents. So that said, we must not discredit or downplay these environmental things. Some Christians will say, none of that matters, just love Jesus, as if that helps you deal with the trauma in your life. (laughs) So instead of pushing them aside, ignoring them, or pretending that they don't exist, we need to be able to filter them through a proper theology. I said this back in week one, if you remember. We must deal with the trauma. We have to deal with the hurt, the betrayal, the rejection, the feelings of being unloved or unwanted or left out, all of the pain. And like it or not, those things shape us and mold us. But they are influencers. They are not determiners. They impact us, but they don't define us. We are made in the image of God. We are made in such a way that we are to—we're planted here to grow and mature and reflect God's thinking. We're to reflect God's feelings. We're to reflect God's purposes. So don't reject your environment. Don't reject the world. Throw it away. See it as broken and in need of restoration because the same thing can be said about you. Your relationship tensions, whether that's spousal or friends or family or whatever they are, don't look at them as these insurmountable problems that you'll never be able to surpass. Look at it as a broken situation that needs to be aligned by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's get even more practical for a moment. Instead of blame shifting everything to our environment we're going to instead, right, this is, our, this, is, this is our process. We're going to embrace that environment knowing that all along that God was and is in control. Uh, the Proverbs says the law is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. We're talking about meticulous sovereignty. Things that happen to you that may seem like random accidents were always in the control of God. So those things shape us, no doubt, and we would be wise to see them. I, I spent Mary and I. We could testify. Like I I think I spent the, um, the first half of our marriage not ever understanding until until we worked through it together. Not really understanding how childhood and events and things shape who you are because none of us you know, just act. We are thinking and feeling creatures too and it all works together. But it was a very eye-opening experience several years ago when we actually sat down and it was kind of like, almost like a volcanic pressure point. Like, f- I need to think through these things. I've never thought through these issues. I've never thought through the, the repercussions of, I remember in fifth grade a, a, a thing happened <laughs> where I was humiliated. And it was like, I never understood how that shaped me. And, and and then you, you, these events happen, and then you, then you're crippled under the weight of how people might think of you, and so you, you act a certain way, and all these different things. You ha- we have to embrace it, and I want to I want to help you embrace it. So I'm going to give you a very non-comprehensive list. Okay, um, environmental factors that have shaped your emotional maturity. No doubt they always shape our emotional maturity. So or the lack thereof, shape our immaturity too. First thing is family. We already kind of talked about it. Your your parents did a lot for you, so you owe them everything, and thus you make an idol out of what should be considered a good gift from God. Or maybe you were in a situation where the family quote-unquote name was such an unrelenting source of focus that you constantly sought to please your parents no matter the cost, regardless of what you thought to be true and right, you just succumb to that. The pressure is on. I grew up uh, an athlete, played basketball, baseball, and I for a long time felt like I had to impress my father. And I needed to do well and excel. And lo and behold, I had the home run record in my high school and it didn't fill me up. <laughs> didn't make it. It was, you know, in the moment, yay, you know, but like, it didn't actually fill me up. I felt like I had to, you know, so you end up in this paradigm where you actually never really feel like you can please them. So you're crushed under the weight of performance. So parents, let your kids know how much that, how much approval they have, especially in the midst of what can be called unapproved actions. So your family then takes a priority of the kingdom. Or perhaps the flip side is true for you. You grew up in a very disjointed family with abuse and quarreling, constant frustration, a fractured family, if you will, um, who could never quite get things right. And to this day, it bothers you. Or what about relationships? You don't trust people, ever. This is because people have let you down so many times that you have now guarded yourself. You don't trust them. Um, you can't fathom any more emotional hurt. So you never let anybody in. You are a closed book. The walls are up and they are larger than Trump's walls. Now the opposite thing could be said too in this situation, you long for friendship. So you're willing to say anything to anyone because no one really knows the real you, but you are trying so bad to get in that you'll say whatever to make them happy. You become a people pleaser. What about success? Things like success, the rat race of having the biggest, best, and most expensive stuff drives you. You call it debt post mail, but it's really debt greed. You want to make a lot of money because you have something to prove to your parents or your friends um, or your false God. See, instead of kingdom faithfulness, you're after your own kingdom. This too could have an opposite dysfunction. You're lazy and slothful, never able to get things done because you've never learned your individual purpose in the kingdom of God. Or sexuality. Perhaps your parents never taught you a thing and you've grown up thinking that it's this terrible thing never to be talked about. And this, of course, that confusion can lend itself to exploration in unhealthy ways. It wreaks havoc on your self-esteem. It wreaks havoc on you because of various sinful things that you have pursued. Um, due to your past, frustration sets in, and as a result, you, you, you have an unhealthy view of women or men, as it were. You have these false expectations that has led you to false views about men and women and roles and relationships, and it consumes you. Let's do another one. Conflict. You grew up in a very passive home, which meant that conflict was to be avoided at all cost. Biggest broom, biggest rug. You people please in order to get people to like you, and you escape thus their wrath. Or maybe you grew up in a very loud home, a very confrontational um, home where everyone just shouted all the time, and conflict resolution looked more like a knockdown, dragout fight than anything amicable or peaceful. Either way, Because of that, you have no idea how to become a peacemaker or how to own your sin and how to help overlook the sins of others. And of course, Matthew 18 means nothing to you. Or anger. What about anger? The emotionally precarious person flips out at the sign of any perceived instability. In other words, you lose control. And the minute that you sense a lack of control, you lose your mind and the volcano erupts. You don't know how to speak softly because no one has ever spoken softly to you. Sometimes you give yourself over to sarcasm and tittle-tattle because you're afraid of your anger because of what you've done with it. Look, there are dozens and dozens of things that we could look at, and this list obviously merely scratches the surface. But the point, however, I think is quite clear. Family of origin issues affect us in ways that sometimes we are often unable We're unable to perceive, unable to see. Um, The way our parents acted and reacted gives us sometimes an unconscious look how we think things should be or shouldn't be. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, Your parents, for for example, were, were always passive and they never, ever, ever talked about problems. Conflict was a sign of weakness and we want to be strong, so we just ignore it altogether. And because of that environment... That is a legitimate environment. Because of that environment now, you think that that's how it's always supposed to be. You think that's the standard. So I think you get the picture. The reason we need to have a healthy view of our environment, whether it's family of origin, your current life stage, or maybe issues in high school or issues in college or so forth, um, all of your relationships, et cetera. The reason we need to have a healthy view of environmentalism is because our emotions our emotions, the way God has built us, are uniquely tied to our experiences. And these experiences tend to shape us in ways that we don't anticipate. That's why it's unconscious. You don't know. Um, the child who is whose insecurity drives him to seek approval from his habitually absent fa- father will impact him as he grows. Like it or not, we all have that emotional baggage and we all are influenced to some degree or another by our environment. But listen, it's one thing to identify the issues. It's a whole nother thing to deal with them. How should we go about handling ourselves in light of some of this newfound revelation? Um, well, the first thing I would suggest is to remember the, remember the theological underpinnings of, <laughs> of what we just considered, right? Environment, the world is not like the God of the deists, right? The founding fathers of this nation. God sort of just, you know, like a top. He spun the world and it just <laughs> keeps spinning. Or if, or if you're like me, it's fixed and we, you know, the sun revolves around us. <laughs> just kidding, going there. But like, it's, that's the world of, of the deists, right? God spun the world. It's going and going and he's off on a cosmic golf retreat vacation. And we just have to, now we're left to deal with it. no. Environmental And the environment is sovereignly orchestrated by God, intricately orchestrated by God, the good and the bad, mind you. Isaiah says whether it's the blessings or the calamity, God's in control of it all. And, and God, though, He desires our maturation through the struggle. He wants you to learn from it. Don't revolt against maturity, right? Embrace it. Embrace it and grow through it. Um, The bad stuff should be seen as bad stuff, and growth means knowing the difference. That's developing an ethical judicial worldview, right? These problems aren't problems that are untouchable, never to be resolved. They are problems that God can and will solve. See, when David sinned, you recall, he didn't blame others. He didn't blame Uriah, the Hittite. He didn't blame Bathsheba. He didn't blame his environment. Oh, if only baths were not on the roof and we had better indoor plumbing, right? He, his repentance was a deep and abiding repentance. And the reason was because he saw it foremost as ultimately a sin against God. Psalm 51.4. And the same can be said about the sins of others and how they affect us, right? Those sins are sins against God first, not us. If someone sins against you and you are bent sideways about it, maybe, and then you like handle it terribly and sin against them, probably the reason you did that in the first place is because you forgot that that sin of theirs was first against God. And because we're selfish, we just think we're the God and they sinned against us. And then we work from the wrong, unhealthy presupposition. See, those sins are sins against God first, then others. If you have bitterness in your heart towards your family or towards your spouse, the only way out is repentance and forgiveness, and that's going to require a whole lot of work. Relationships can be tangled webs of confusion and a mess. That's like, for so long, I almost, like, premarital counseling. It's almost like, maybe we just have a five-minute conversation, and then in five years, we'll, like, spend five weeks. (laughs) Because... There's so much that can be said on the front end, front end that you can never actually know until you're in it and you have to deal with it. Another thing I wanna suggest in dealing with this stuff is taking the time to sit down with a good friend who is willing to listen and help sift through the emotional <laughs> struggles that you're, you're experiencing. It's a sad day when we have farmed out so much of Christian counseling to the perceived experts when Galatians 6.1 says those who are spiritual should be restoring those who are not. Mm-hmm. Sit down with a good friend over coffee and just talk. And not about tittle-tattle and the weather. I mean, you could start there. But talk. And, and I want to I say this because it was said to me. I don't think you really know someone until you ask them the question, Hey, what is your experience of me? You want to get in deep? What is your experience of me? Am I impatient? Am I demeaning? Am I a complainer? Am I... You want to have a conversation that will bear all and live in the light of the gospel? That's it. This type of humility and transparency is incredibly difficult because it requires us to open ourselves for examination and no one really likes to be that vulnerable. It's very difficult. See, the way out of this emotional trap of your environment is by dealing with God first, confessing any unrepentant sin, and second, sifting through the struggle with a friend who's willing to potentially wound you. Remember what Proverbs 27, 6 says, there is faithfulness in the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Um, Working through your environment instead of blaming the environment is the key to a healthy heart. And in all that we feel, all the consternation, all the joy, all the hurt, all the happiness, we have to give ourselves over to biblical thinking and biblical feeling. Listen, no environment is so bad that God cannot help you to overcome. No upbringing is so bad that you can't labor in Christ to choose to go a different route for you and your family. No hurt is so deep that your Savior can't empathize with you. No emotional scarring is so bad that the balm of our union with Christ cannot heal it. And listen, this is the last thing I'll say. You are not a product of your environment. You are a human being made in the image of God, and Christ has come to see to it that that image is fully restored. In your thinking, in your feeling, in your doing, let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we we um we know that there's some deep stuff there. This this world that you have created is good and beautiful, and, and but we have destroyed it. We have polluted it, and because of sin, it has affected us in ways that we don't even yet know. And Father, I I'm, I guess my prayer is just that you would give us conviction by your Spirit, conviction to face conflict, conviction to face these deep things that shape us through life experiences in our childhood and so on. Give us the conviction to to deal with it, to repent if we need to repent, to to serve our neighbor, our friends if we need to do that. Whatever the case is, God, would you give us wisdom? Because we certainly need it. So we ask and pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.